0: Two minutes before seven o'clock. Welcome back to your 702 weekend breakfast with me, Kogs and Time for us to get into our nature diary. And this week we are talking about, I think, quite an interesting creature. Very few of us know very little about it. Often when we describe it, when we, well, we talk about it, we use it to describe unscrupulous people, like, for instance,
1: lawyers. Uh, Yes, funny funny you should mention that. I have made a (laughs) list of them. Undertakers, lawyers and tow truck drivers.
0: Yes, Yes, yes. We are, of course, talking about vultures. And are vultures as... Because the idea is that they pray, they wait on things, bad things to happen to good people.
1: Well, you know, whenever I see a bunch of vultures around a carcass, okay, to me it looks like a bunch of undertakers. (laughs) They've got that same sort of macabre and they're kind of, you know, good morning and they've got that macabre look. They don't look anything like lawyers. (laughs) It, it, and at least they're open and, you know, above and sort of, sorry lawyers, it's not that we're being nasty to you, we're just, you, you guys, you guys cause that yourself.
0: Some of my best friends are
1: lawyers. Yes, you got to have a best friend as a lawyer these days. It's true. Uh, talking, you know, just as we go into this, uh, if we win AFCON, do we get three days public holiday, Mr. President? Do you
0: know what would For be great? Week. Do you know what would be great? If Bafana win AFCON, and the thing is, he's now set a precedent in that the Springboks got a public holiday. Yes. While the Springboks got us a public holiday. Yes. It seems only fair that if Bafana does win AFCON and it's their first AFCON win in almost 30 years... We kind of need a public holiday. Uh, more than one. And I just think he should announce the election date, right? And that's likely to be a Wednesday because apparently the other days of the week are terrible for voting. And then put that day on a Thursday. Everyone will take Friday off. And uh, we are happy. Yes, exactly. Small businesses won't be happy, though. No, nobody co- will be happy. The economy will not be happy. But
1: I, will, personally, it will, be, very will happy. be thrilled. Right, now back to these characters. <laughs> I think... I've known Kerry for many years And I mean I call her vulture girl um, Because I think she is part vulture Not that I've seen <laughs> her eating at a carcass um, But you know These, these poor creatures are, are vilified on every turn And we'll discover this morning Just how dirty they aren't um, And I kind of like them I, and, and I like vulture feathers There's, I, I collect feathers and vulture feathers are kind of cool, but yeah, why do we why do we vilify vultures? Why do we have this thing about them being macabre? And you know, and, and how do they they how do they see into the future? Mm. How do they know there's going to be a carcass there? Maybe Kerry can tell us that.
0: Joined on the line by chief executive of Valpro, which is a vulture conservation group, Kerry Walter, joining us on the line this morning. Kerry, a very good morning to you. And good
2: morning, thanks for having me on the show. Uh,
0: so Kerry, how did you become uh, interested and I guess involved in the work of or being involved with vultures? Why vultures? <laughs>
2: um, many people ask me and, and my first response is why not, um, but I guess, you know, as you have said, they are, they're, they're not generally the chosen species mm. and they weren't a chosen species for me actually. Um, I wanted to get into conservation and it just so happened that my first job was actually managing a vulture study group and I actually I knew nothing about the species and I thought it was a stepping stone to get into you know, a different side of conservation. Anyway, 21 years later here I am, still working to, to protect uh, vulture species and i actually think it was a calling, you know, and that the species ended up choosing me as kind of their voice and I know that sounds a little egotistical and i don't i don't mean it to sound egotistical, but it really was i think just a calling and and I just think I meant. ...to be here to do what I
1: do. Hmm. Kerry, people always say that vultures are filthy, dirty things. I mean, good heavens, they're not They're not going around to the local butcher... ...and asking for three lamb chops and a piece of steak. They're getting into some dirty old carcass and grubbing around in the inside. How on earth do they survive? Are, are they as dirty as we make them out to be?
2: Hmm. Tim, it's a good question. And I think the reason why people believe that is, you know, when when you generally see a vulture... You, you see them at a carcassite. Um, and when I say carcassite, you know, a predator's made a kill. The vultures come in and clean up. And because they've, they're cleaning up, they've got blood on their necks. And, you know, they're eating the parts that we are squeamish about. And so people perceive that as them being dirty. What a lot of people don't understand is that they're actually incredibly clean birds. So after they, will, after they feast, they actually go look for a water source and they bath. And they are meticulous at cleaning themselves. And, and you can imagine that in order to have the flight that they have, their feathers have to be absolutely perfect and immaculate. Because if they're not perfect, because, you know, vultures are designed for thermaling, if they are not perfect, they will not be able to thermal and forage as widely as what they do. In addition to that, you know, we for some reason seem to believe that vultures eat off rotten carcasses. Mm-hmm. And because they eat of rotten carcasses, again, we perceive them as being dirty and we, we're just very squeamish about it because, you know, rotten food for us is, is not obviously ideal. Mm-hmm. But vultures tend to prefer fresh carcasses. So in an ideal world where a predator's made a kill, the food that's left over is actually very fresh. Um, The the rotten carcasses that we tend to see is from, you know, a very large animal that has died from a disease or whatnot, and the birds can't get into it. Um, And so they will start eating off soft tissue parts until the body softens up, and then they eat the rest of it. And it's not because they prefer eating rotten carcasses; it's just because they can't actually get in until the skin has softened. So vultures seem then to play quite an important
0: role in terms of, I guess, the uh, quite literally the circle of life. So they help, um, you know, carcasses um, kind of decompose, and so they're quite, they quite they, they play quite a, an important role. Even though I think they have such terrible PR, despite their terrible PR.
2: Correct. You know, we we definitely need our vultures to, to preserve and to keep our environment clean. You know, we like to say it when we, we're giving uh, school uh, talks, we like to say that they are our natural recyclers of our environment. And they, by, by consuming carcasses so quickly and so efficiently, which is unmatched to any other scavenger, they actually aid in the prevention of diseases and some diseases are and can be infectious and contagious to other animals and species so they help actually curb those infections um, and, and keep our environment clean.
1: Kerry, how many different species do we have and the different roles that they, they play um, and, and am I right in saying that one of them lets the sire down and the damn thing is a vegetarian?
2: Uh, I love that Jim. (laughs) We we do have an interesting vulture species in that of a palm nut vulture. The interesting thing about these species, and they are least concerned actually, they're actually one of the the only species that are doing pretty well. Um, they're, They're omnivorous, which is kind of unheard of for vultures. And as you say, they have let the side down. They Predate, so when I say predate, they fish, they scavenge, but they also eat fruit from the palm trees, the very specific fruit, are, uh, uh, palm trees, which is from the raffia palm. Um, the rest of the species, and there, there are several others, they are true scavengers and true carnivores. Um, and yes, they have multiple functions. So you have your large old world vultures, really the vultures that we Mostly being the African White-backed Vulture, the Cape Vulture, those are your bulk feeders, and those are the ones that have these really long bear necks and they dig into a carcass, and that is why they have these these bear necks in order to try and keep as clean as possible. The the larger vultures being the Lappet-faced Vulture, which often scares people and has a a stigma about you know being a dangerous uh, vulture and terrifying um, <laughs> they're, they're anything but that but, but these ones are really the knives of the vulture wolves and um, they're the ones that are the, them and the white headed vulture. are the only ones that actually can rip open flesh because of the strength of their beak so they have much shorter necks they have um, feathers on their necks but their function is really to eat the hard parts, so the ears, the jaw the tongue, the and, and they actually rip open carcasses if a carcass has not been predated on. Um, you then get your smaller species that come in, eat on the outskirts, or they eat the, the little sinew parts off a bone. So all vulture species together will consume and finish an entire carcass efficiently, um, which is phenomenal. You know, they're all adapted to have very specific roles.
1: Now, vultures, obviously, we've got an issue that that they are incredibly threatened in our country for a number of reasons, but you've now gone out and you've decided that the Eastern Cape, which everybody ignores, which annoys me, um, the Eastern Cape was a very good place to start putting in a new vulture colony. Are they going to stay there? Where is it? Are they going to stay there? Are these things not homing pigeons?
0: Also sorry I'm trying to figure out uh, how a vulture colony works. How do you, do you as in we we keep them in like cages? How does it work because well they're, they're birds. Yes. And, and, and so <laughs> I'm just I'm just That's trying why to I'm asking the
1: question about yeah, a homing pigeon.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how we would keep them in a colony because well they they could just go. Yes.
2: So very very good questions. So, firstly, there are a couple of existing breeding sites in the Eastern Cape, but the, the number of Cape vultures has plummeted in in the last couple of years. Um, and so what we've done is we've re- relocated 160-odd, mostly non-releasable vultures for to establish specifically a breeding program here in South Africa, um, that is focused on captive breeding for population supplementation and where necessary reintroduction. Having said as is we've also moved the 2022, uh, sorry, 2023 captive bred offspring to be released here in Shamari, um, Shamari private uh, game reserve. And the, the reason why we've done that is having a captive situation of non-releasable birds will also help keep those releasable birds in close proximity because vultures congregate in large numbers. They're, they're very sociable, um, and so generally they do like staying with where other vultures are. But the releases are not as simple as that. In order to keep vultures in an area, firstly, you need to have attractions, like, as you've said, a vulture colony, suitable breeding sites. But very importantly is you need to have adequate food. And the food ultimately is what's going to keep the birds around in the area. So we will be doing a staggered release at Shamwari. So we won't be um, just opening up the cage and letting them all go at once because if we do that, they probably will all disperse and either land up in trouble or go back to Harabirspos. We will release two at a time. And by that, we will also be feeding them on the outside, but we will also have their friends on the inside. So the idea in a perfect world is as we release them, the birds are free to come and go if there's a magnet because their friends are still inside the enclosure. This gives those birds time to adjust to their environment. It gives them time to explore but to come back and to know where there is safe food, to know where their friends are, where there is an existing colony, if you want to call it that.
1: Um, it's, it's curious, sorry, but but something so much great about that. This, but what you're saying is that you're establishing a colony in a safe spot.
2: Well, yes, I, I I'm not convinced that birds will stay to breed um, right here at Shamwari, but there are there are historical breeding sites surrounding us, and we hope to repopulate those breeding sites and to have the birds, you know. Forage around a safe area because there is nowhere safe anymore in South Africa. You know, the the number of power lines, uh, poisonings, wind turbines, which, yes, is a big problem in the Eastern Cape, but there are no safe areas anymore for vultures in the country, let alone, I think, globally. Um, So we are creating a safe foraging spot away from poisoning, which I think is pertinent, given that poisoning is actually decimating vultures in Africa.
0: That was going to be my next question, Carrie. Uh, Tim often talks about the big challenge of poisoning and the impact that it has on vulture numbers. Um, is that a matter of a lack of awareness? Are people using and often Tim refers to farmers um, looking to deal with other, I guess, scavengers or predators, um, and then they'll and then the vultures eat the carcass that now has the poison. Is it a matter of education that people don't know that using poison in this way has an impact on vultures? Is there a way to try to deal with that issue? Because it seems to come up with regards
2: to um, the impact on vulture numbers. It's a good question and I, I'm not convinced it's purely education. Um, I think a lot of the landowners and, aware and um managers, farmers, etc., are aware of the potential impacts poisoning has. You know, I, I think there has been a lot of awareness that has been done by Dr. Charlotte Fadun for many, many years. Um, obviously, there are new farmers that, that come into play um, and they may not be as educated or as aware of the problem. I think the biggest threat really is the greed and the want mostly for belief-based purposes. A lot of the poisoning that we are seeing now is related to poaching and belief-based use. And this is becoming um, more prevalent and it's on the increase and it's, it's generally related to poisoning incidents now. When there's a poisoning incident in the past, you would have a bunch of dead vultures, but intact vultures. Now, at poisoning events, you're getting a bunch of dead vultures, but they're headless. Um, and so this, this, to me, is not necessarily re- related to education, but the state of the country where people are desperate. They're desperate to try and do anything they possibly can to survive. And whether it's a belief of being able to foresee into the future by... Supposedly believing a vulture's clairvoyant powers, they will do that, and and this is the I I believe the difficulty we face with regards to poisoning. There's still poisoning, you know, indirect poisoning by farmers and landowners that do target problem animals, and vultures do in turn um, get poisoned in that manner. But majority of the poisoning is now related to belief-based or to other wildlife of life poisoning where poachers are trying to get rid of your indicators being vultures to a poisoning scene because your poachers want to come and go as they please and vultures are basically the alarm clocks to your rangers and, and your anti-poaching teams.
1: Yeah, I, I know that that was a comment that was made by a number of people with rhino issues for example where they would try and poison off the vultures first uh, and then go, go in and poach the rhino because otherwise you're going to have the vulture circling overhead saying there's a problem below. Kerry, uh, the last question I have though is you mentioned that word um, non-releasable. What determines that something is non-releasable?
2: So, Tim, a lot of the birds that we get in are from a negative power line interactions, and that has resulted in uh, broken bones but mostly broken wings. And although these individuals cannot be released because they've got broken wings, they can never fly sufficiently to actually survive in the wild, um, we, we term them non-releasable. And I think the exciting part is it gives the species hope using those individuals that have been lost to the wild population in a captive breeding program where their offspring can then be released. So we're trying to put back what is lost, which is very difficult. Um, but I think, you know, having birds that cannot fly rather than euthanizing them because the species are critically endangered and endangered, they, they can still contribute to their wild species counterpart. Mm. Some have worse breaks than others um, and, and some have very slight breaks, you know, like a ripped tendon. Um, They can fly to a point, but they they can never uh, forage widely as they should. And so they would never survive. So various different issues that have caused them, you know, being termed non-releasable. Even if they're blind in one eye, you know, they lose that depth perception. And to release a bird like that with so many threats is just not in their best interest. But yet it's in their best interest that they can still contribute to their species
1: survival. Interesting fact there quickly, Googs, that they I looked at some articles on American releases mm-hmm. from release to the death of the bird, seven minutes. Really? On average. Seven exactly minutes? exactly what Kerry is saying, that although that you can pin and and you think you're doing the wonderful wonderful thing for the bird, yeah. the its ability to fly, its ability to soar and once it gets up and it gets into a cold thermal, et cetera, or cold point in the air, suddenly you get on. If you've got arthritis and a pin in your body, you know all about it. Oh, that's no. exactly, that. so they're saying seven minutes between release and the death of the bird.
0: Sure. Kerry, we must leave it at that. We are out of time. But thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. That's Chief Executive of VALPRO, a vulture conservation group, Kerry Walter, joining us this morning. Tim, uh, we were going to touch on what's happening in Simonstown, but the vultures were just so interesting.
1: Yes. There was so much to say about the vultures. Yeah, and, and that's just the tip of the iceberg with the vultures. So, mm. you know, I think in a couple of months' time, we'll drag Kerry back again and find out, first of all, how is that release program going? Yeah. Uh, but there's, there's, there's a lot and there's a lot of education that we can do. Yeah. Um, which I think is tremendously important.
0: If there's a topic you'd like for us to discuss in the Nature Diary, drop us a line on l seven two seven zero two one seven zero two. Send me an email at gogs at 702.co.za. And Tim, as always, I will see you next week you shall do <laughs> that's our nature csi um and uh, conservationist tim neary